Visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily... Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Laura Davis. Laura's the author of six best-selling books, including The Courage to Heal and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her groundbreaking books have sold 1.8 million copies worldwide. She leads weekly writing classes in Santa Cruz and inspirational writing retreats nationally and internationally, specializing in writing as a tool for healing and transformation. Each fall, Laura offers a special retreat that's particularly apt for this show, Writing as a Pathway Through Grief, Loss, Uncertainty, and Change, designed for those dealing with any kind of loss, death, retirement, illness, aging, a shift in status or relationship, or simply a time of change and uncertainty. The workshop held at the beautiful Commonweal Retreat Center, I love that place, in Bolinas, California, at the height of Indian summer, provides a healing oasis, a way to harness the power of words and story into a healing, transformative force, proving that writing in community and being deeply witnessed is a powerful tool for change. If you want to find Laura and the workshops, you can go to lauradavis.net and then add a slash grief if you want to go directly to the workshops. Welcome, Laura. I might, I might have titled our our conversation, you know, I called it um, Estrangement to Reconciliation because I was aware as I was looking at everything you've done in your life, and I, I had read Courage to Heal a long time ago, but I read um, Estrangement to Reconciliation, that, that uh, I Thought We'd Never Speak Again book, preparing for this, and I began to see your exploration of grief as really a lifelong unfolding um, because both those books, in my mind, are also about losses, as in as is the memoir that you're writing now and the grief work you're doing. Um, so I wondered if you saw it that way. Yeah, I mean, I I I was um, I was born into grief because I had an identical twin who died at 24 hours old, and so my whole life has been shaped by that experience. And so I think my perspective. Um, also has been shaped, and my work uh, very much has been about about grief, but also healing. I mean, more about healing than the grief, but the healing yes. comes from that root of loss. Well, I, I I'm always happy when guests say that. That really, there's the loss, there's the mourning and grief, and then there's the whatever comes next. Um, that. Um, it it feels all like part of the process to me. Uh, you can't you can't kind of get transformation without the other stuff in a way. No, you absolutely cannot. And you know, I think some people want to try to shortcut through it. You know, um, but then they don't get the reward of the integration of the loss if you're just covering it over. 
Um, so it is. It's really important to do the work. And I'm and I'm aware that there's an aspect of what you do. Uh, I have written with you, just to be fully disclosing to the audience. You know, in a, in the retreat I attended with you, um, there's a way that uh, the healing practice of um, say writing practice as opposed to writing a book uh, to me is very uh, it's very obvious to me when I write in that way that something is moving inside of me uh, and for that way I could say um, kind of just pouring out not trying to produce anything um, you could probably say more about that in a second but I wondered if that also applies to the more um edited, careful writing you do, that that also has been a a healing process? You know, anything I do that's edited or published, you know, and that is designed for an audience, it all starts in a raw state. You know, I mean, you don't, I don't sit down and try to write a polished piece. I sit down and really try to um, pour my heart out and really access the deeper layers of what's going on inside of me because I'm writing about myself um, primarily and my own experience. And, you know, you have to start, if you really want to get in touch with um, the real material, the kind of um, writing that is transformative, not just for you, but for an audience, you have to start from the raw place, not with, and and basically take the editor and throw the editor away for a period of time uh, and just really dive into what's there and what I love about it is that often what comes out is unexpected. And mm. I just came from teaching my morning writing class. And what's so intriguing is I had, you know, maybe a dozen women um, sitting in the circle. And I gave prompts and everyone's response was so different. And, you know, people who are dealing with grief, inevitably, no matter what suggestion I make to write, they will return to that core um, pain. And that will be the subject of their piece. So, you know, whatever it is that needs to come out, uh, when you give uh, the opportunity for someone to write from the heart without restraint, uh, without uh, rules, without editing, without trying to come up with a product, whatever is deepest in their heart is going to emerge on the page. And uh, often it's a surprise to the writer. Mm. And and I'm I'm realizing listening to you how that intersects with an idea that I have about grief itself that it's a creative process because we don't know what's going to happen and we're we're um, engaging in the unknown in that way and that I the 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 practice you teach reflects that um, very well it invites that I should say that people are really invited to um, not know what's going to come out of them and and not try to make it be anything. That's the same as what I experience when I'm in in profound grief. Yeah, we don't really know um, the direction things are going to take. We don't know what things will trigger us. Um, you know, you could be going through your day feeling um, okay or feeling quote-unquote normal, and then you hear a little piece of music or you see a bud on a tree um, you know, or an article of clothing or the back of someone's head on the street and suddenly you're reminded of your loss and it just comes spilling back. And uh, that happens all the time in writing. Um, sometimes I have people do things like, you know, make a list of um, smells from your childhood, you know, and one mm-hmm. smell or another may bring up a thread that is completely unexpected. Uh, but all those 
those feelings, those memories, those experiences, those losses are sitting there waiting to be tapped. And sometimes, uh, I'll I'll use myself as an example. So uh, I had just lost my mother-in-law when I came to your workshop, with whom I was extremely close. Uh, My wife and I have been married for 20 years. Um, We adored each other. And so I was in quite deep grief. She didn't come out in my writing at all. <laughs> that was the surprise. Other losses did, but not, but not her. So, because um, when, when people um, sign up to come to this grief retreat, and you know, on the form that they fill out, there's a question. You know, why are you signing up for this at this time? And people write, you know, a paragraph or two, sometimes a whole page, about all the different losses they're dealing with. And you know, it could be a death, it could be retirement, it could be being a caregiver, it could be empty nest, it could be the loss of a job or an identity or any, anything, really. And they write that down, and then they come to the workshop, and in most cases, they end up working on other things. I mean, the, the reason they think they came is not often um, the actual thing that gets worked on once they're sitting with a community. Yeah, we lost her. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Laura Davis, you can go to lauradavis.net. And if you want to specifically go to the workshop, just put slash grief after that. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Laura Davis, an author who conducts writing workshops, has written several books, and conducts a fall workshop for people who are grieving, which is especially relevant to our show. And um, Laura, before the break, we were just talking about these surprising things that happen if you just open up to whatever's in there. What comes out may be quite, quite, quite different than what you would have thought, uh, you know, what you would have expected. Um, And that seems, do, do people ever have a hard time with that? Or is it kind of a relief to them typically when you're working with grief specifically? I think it's all connected. I don't think people usually have a hard time. They might be a little surprised, but I think... Um, people want to deal with whatever's arising in the moment. And sometimes when you're, when you're in a group of people and people are sharing in a community of grief, what other people are working on impacts you. Um, you know, one person comes in and is dealing with, uh, you know, a, a parent who's just died, and then maybe there's three or four people dealing with that, and then suddenly everyone is writing stories about aging parents or when their parents died. So there's that kind of influence. But I think really what is necessary to be worked on rises to the surface, and I think it can be trusted. All our griefs are linked together anyway. You, you know, you have a, a new thing to grieve, and it brings up the losses from the past. I mean, we all, the older we get, the more layers and layers and layers we have of um, reminders of other griefs. You know, I was I was thinking of that particularly as I was reading your new work for the memoir you're writing about your mom's um, decline and and death. And um, there's a reading that I'm going to ask you to share in a minute. But you, it it exemplifies what you're talking about because you kind of went back to the very beginning of loss for you. Um, and I imagine that maybe was catalyzed in that period of time where where you were dealing with your mom's health and eventual death. Uh, it, did you think of it that way at the time? Um, I think the loss I'm going to read about is something that has been with me my whole life, but it, it definitely came into focus more um, when my mom was declining. Um, because, well, I don't really want to give away the story, but, you know, the, this loss had everything to do with my mother. And mm-hmm. so, you know, her, her decline and her death definitely brought it up for me. 
Well, and let's just hear that everything. and then, yeah, let's let's just uh, let the listeners hear that and then we can talk more about that afterwards. So this first piece is written in the form of a letter to my mother. Um, it's not an actual letter I sent. It's one I constructed. Dear Mom, I've been thinking back to the time I grew inside you when I held my sister in my arms. I always held her in my arms. Even when we had no arms, still I held her. Even when we were just a thought, then an egg and a sperm, then an embryo, I held her. She tucked under my arm. We floated together, still and serene. No one knew she was there, just me. And I knew she wasn't strong enough. But under my wing, she grew, quarter ounce by quarter ounce. Slowly, steadily, my secret sister found her way toward life. Our hearts beat as one heart, her heartbeat a shadow of mine. Don't worry, I told her. You could lean on me. We didn't speak, of course. There were no words or lips in that place. But there were vibrations, and in the vibrations that pulsed between us, we knew all we needed to know about each other. We can do this, I urged her, when her body went slack, her heart beat feeble. Stay with me. Don't leave. I need you. And she stayed. Weeks went by like that, then months. She floated in the safety of my arms until our watery home turned on us, Walls squeezed down so hard her elbows made grooves in my narrow chest. You were in labor, Mom, and you didn't want to be. You'd lost two babies already, two miscarriages. You were only seven months along. You must have thought you were losing me. You had no idea we were two. I tightened my arms around her thin skin, her unfinished lungs, her body void of fat. She held on as long as she could until I was torn away from her, your womb thrusting me into a new, piercing, white world full of pressure and fear, an assault on my skin, my eyes, my senses. I did not want to be there. I wanted to be in our watery home. This world was too bright, too cold, too soon. They put me on the scale, two pounds, 12 ounces, no bigger than a sack of rice. As they rushed me to the NICU, the doctor turned back to you. Hold on, Mrs. Davis. There's another one coming. That's how you learned about my twin. The two of us, identical. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I never saw my sister again. They told you not to grieve, Mom, that you should be happy one of us survived. Don't build a monument to someone who never existed, the rabbi advised. But you insisted on giving her a name, Vicky. Thank you, Mom, for giving my secret sister a name. For the next six weeks, you weren't allowed to touch me. No one was. They didn't believe in holding preemies then. I was sentenced to six weeks in a glass box in the neonatal intensive care unit, They called it an isolette, the perfect name for my healing prison. It isolated me from human contact. It isolated me from healing touch. It isolated me from the floating comfort of my sister, your trembling, eager hands, the warm expanse of Dad's chest, my big brother's laughter. 
It wove into my every cell the certain knowledge that I was alone, each breath that ripped through my unfinished lungs. Alone, alone, you will always be alone. Nurses wearing rubber gloves reached in to adjust my tubes, check my wires, change my tiny diaper. Their cold hands poked and prodded me. The whoosh of machines, the tick-tock of the clock, a pale shadow of the heartbeat that had sustained me, that I had sustained. The nurses took notes on hard brown clipboards and moved on to the next tiny baby. They did what they could and left me alone. Babies my size weren't supposed to survive in 1956. I was a scrawny, undersized chicken. If I made it, they said, I'd probably be blind or retarded. They really couldn't say. It was a wonder I survived at all. And so you waited and prayed. You were 29 years old. I've always wondered how you survived my weeks in that hard glass box, your breasts full of milk for two, your arms aching, me on the edge of life, full of tape and tubes and flat blue veins. What promises did you make to God if only he would let me live? One of the things that touches me a lot in that, Laura, is your um, trying to discern your mother's relationship to that happening. Of course, there's also your relationship to it. Um, I don't know if you um, aroused, you know, preverbal memory or if you imagined, but it's very... um, evocative, but then you're also trying to understand her in it and what that experience might have been like. I find I do that much more than I used to with my own mother, who's, who's, <laughs> who's died, uh, you know, several years ago now, um, that I really do, I really do put myself in her shoes more. And I felt that in this piece of writing, you're kind of uh, imagining being her in a way. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because I've I've written this story many many times in many different ways, and in another version I wrote the same basic story, but at the end of the story, I think what I got in touch with was that as a little tiny preemie uh, born into grief, that I really didn't want to survive, that I wanted to follow my sister, but that it was yeah. actually my mother's very strong will that pulled me into the world, and mm. you know, that's how our relationship began with her insistence that I come into the world and and also uh, pretty unusually for that time I'd say her when you name a baby who's been lost I think I think there's a way you are claiming that there's a relationship there you know you're you're refusing to ignore the connection yes mm-hmm. yeah and so in a way your your mother was willing to grieve because uh, you know, willing to see it as a loss, even though she was being told to ignore it. Yeah, and I don't think no one around her saw it as a loss. You know, my father certainly didn't. And what everyone said is, you know, focus on the baby who lived, you know, focus on Laura. And so I think there was, there was no acknowledgement, no support for her to grieve. Um, so I is felt that, like that was, that was a little act of defiance on her part and insistence of saying, you know, this being existed. Right. I blew her. You know, I yeah. made her. She she deserves to be marked somewhere. 
Absolutely. D- did you and she ever talk about that directly? We the did, fact you that know, she- not that often, but we did sometimes. And I, I did tell her that you know my whole life would have been. She, she said she would think about what my life would have been like. She didn't talk so much about her loss, but I think she talked more about what she wondered what that loss was like for me because being an identical twin is such a powerful experience and. And, you know, that being alone, you know, I think my whole life would have been different. Um, and, the, and the more difficult things that, would have, that have happened to me in my life, I would have had that person there with me. Um, so I think, I think it, of all the losses I've suffered, it's the most primal loss. Yes. Well, and the other thing is that's a very particular relationship, I think. Uh, you know, given what I know about twins and given the twins I know, <laughs> um, it's a very, uh, you, you're in a world with someone in a sense, uh, in a way that other siblings aren't. So that would have had an impact too, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. When I was pregnant, both times I was pregnant, I really secretly was longing to have twins. You know? <laughs> but I, didn't, I had two, two single children, so I didn't have that experience. But I would have been really happy um, to uh-huh. be pregnant with twins and to get to really witness and be part of that. Uh, yeah, and to and to maybe in a sense experience what you didn't get to uh, from the outside a little because it wouldn't have been you as the twin, but I imagine there would have been something pretty, um, pretty deep about that to be yeah. the mother of of children experiencing that relationship. I think that's true. Um. So. I, you know, I haven't read everything you've ever written, but I've read quite a quite a number of things. And um, although you do include yourself as a voice in your writing, um, you're not, um, I guess I want to say clinical, you know, you're, you include things that you've experienced, but it's not memoir. It includes a lot of other people's stories and um and thoughts about whatever the subject is you're writing about. So I don't, have you written, mem, you know, uh, full-on memoir before, or is that something that came about um, through the experience with your mom, or um, what's that been about for you? You know, I think I've, I've, I remember when I, after I published my first book, The Courage to Heal, I was very young. I was only 31 years old, just 30 years ago. And my editor at the time kept urging me to write a memoir. And I just thought that was ridiculous because I was such a young person. <laughs> um, but it, it sort of planted that idea in the back of my mind. And I think this time around, the reason I'm, I am, I mean, I've written lots of memoir pieces for decades. You know, I've written lots of autobiographical things, but I haven't published a full-on memoir, which is very, very different. And this was definitely motivated um, you know, even when my mother was failing, I was taking notes all the time. I mean, I knew I wanted to write about her because she has been probably the most consuming, powerful relationship I've had in my life. You know, maybe my own children, I have, you know, equally um, strong relationship, but my relationship with her was much more entangled and challenging um, than mine with my own children. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, for me, it's it's when I, when she died, um, I got. I have this chair that I bought for her, just about four big recliner. I'm actually sitting in it right now. It's a blue <laughs> lazy boy, and 
I bought it for her because we didn't expect her to die. We didn't think she was dying at that time. And I bought her this chair because um, she needed something to sit in besides the hospital bed and her assisted living. And when she died, I, it, this place she lived in was just about five minutes away, and I had my two cousins who said, is there anything I could do? I said, would you bring that chair home? So they <laughs> carried this huge chair five minutes away into my office where it's been ever since, and it's where I sit and write. And at that time, right after she died, I sat down for half an hour a day, and I created a, a ritual where I pulled out my notebook, and I just wrote about her for half an hour. And I set an actual timer because what I found was that I was avoiding grief in so many ways, you know, or just not wanting to feel it, not wanting to deal with it. Plus, I was trying to function in my life. And so I gave myself that little contained half an hour a day to write. And whatever was going on that day, whatever I was, and it, it didn't have to be particularly sad, just it could be a memory, it could be anything. I just spent that half hour writing and then the timer would go off and I would close my notebook and... You know, I lit a candle, then I'd blow out the candle. And a lot of that writing just, it it kept drawing me in, and that really was the root of beginning this memoir. And, uh, you know, so that was almost four years ago. And uh, I think, you know, for me, this this writing project is definitely a part of my grieving process and my healing process and also helping me understand this very complex relationship on other levels besides you know, kind of the, the rote stories I've told. This is what happened between my mother and I. You know, I've had all these um, habitual stories that I honed um, into weapons at times, particularly <laughs> in the more difficult periods of our relationship. And so I'm really going through a process of questioning everything, questioning all those habitual stories. And what is the truth? What is the truth underneath those stories? You know, what's the real truth? Um, and, you know, one of the writing prompts I like to give people is, um, now here's the real truth, or here's the uh, part I never told anyone before. And you could just keep using that prompt over and over again to get deeper and deeper into your story and to get underneath kind of the habitual way we tell things um, for the real truth. Yeah. And that's that's what I'm seeking through this process. It's interesting because I was so... Well, because I know about the memoir you're writing and because I'd read a little bit of it and heard a little bit of it, reading um, I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, I was so aware that your mother and you had had to um, go through a process to kind of get the impediments between you out of the way and form a relationship that was deep and strong, Um, that that wasn't necessarily a completely easy road. And so then uh, I I was sure that it has to impact then your experience of um, being there for her in the last part of her life that you'd already done um, that work. I've been thinking a lot lately about just how um, how our losses build on on each other in terms of obviously they're all different you know uh for many reasons but there is a sense i have that uh when i grieve again there's something different because i've because i've grappled before and i wondered if you were um aware of anything like that in kind of hearkening back to early times in your relationship with her well there's a couple things i want to say one is that You know, the death of my mother was unlike any other loss I ever experienced. I felt 
the, the word I used was I kept saying, I feel completely untethered. Mm. And then I would say, yes. I feel like all my internal furniture is being rearranged. You know, <laughs> oh, and, and I love that. that happened, yeah. It was really made it even more difficult is that, you know, my mother died, this huge force in my life. And three weeks later, we sent our youngest child off to college. Uh. So I had those, those losses, you know, uh, happening simultaneously. You know, the end of 25 years of parenting, direct parenting, and my mother, the last parent to die. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was very big. So I, I don't feel like anything I went through before really prepared me. Um, and I think in terms of the work my mom and I had done before, you know, our reconciliation brought us to a certain point of um, being able to really create a contemporary relationship in the present. But because the way we reconciled did not involve really deeply healing the core issue between us. You know, we sort of did a workaround. We agreed to disagree. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was great. I mean, it, it enabled us to um, have, a, I think, a really successful relationship for the last, I don't know if it was 20 years of her life. And I'm really grateful for that. But underneath, I think there was still maybe like the little child in me was still holding out, hoping that someday the deeper issues that never got resolved would get resolved, you know, that uh, maybe at the very end of her life, you know, we'd, we'd finally have that come to Jesus moment, you know, and it, <laughs> it never happened. And I, I never even um, consciously acknowledged that as a wish. I think in my writing now, I'm really exploring, um, you know, what was not resolved. You know, there were all the things that were resolved were fantastic, but the, the story wasn't really finished. And, you know, now that she's, she's dead, the only way for me to resolve it is in my own psyche, you know, in my own spirit and through my own writing. And so that's what I'm doing. I, I, that, that just feels so important, what you're saying, and very familiar to me, that um, kind of at, at someone's death, the last chance to work something, anything out with them is gone. Mm-hmm. And that is quite a marker. Uh, you know, when my wife died, I felt quite resolved with her. And so it wasn't such a um, internal, um, I didn't experience a lot of regret or, uh, you know, it, it was just simple grief. But with my mom, I do have that, that there are just some things that I have to work out by myself. And, um explore by myself and come to understanding without the benefit of whatever she might have thought about it. And I do, I do hear what you're saying. That's a very different experience. Yeah. And it's interesting. If you had asked me when she died, what I felt, I absolutely at the time felt completely resolved. Like I didn't feel there was anything unfinished. I felt like the gift of taking care of her and being, you know, her person for the last, six years of her life or six or seven years that when she moved, I moved her out to California where I live from New Jersey. I really felt like everything was resolved. It's only now years later that I'm questioning that. <laughs> and I'm saying that they're, you know, these things are so complicated. Yes. They're way more complicated than we think. So at the time I didn't feel unfinished, but <laughs> as I explore it more and I think, why am I um, driven to write this book because something's unresolved. There's something I'm still trying to figure out. Some kind of legacy well, I'm still trying to sort through. 
Yes, and I don't know if this is true for you, but for me with my mom, I am actually, uh, I've since she died, I've been forming quite a different relationship with her. And that's an ongoing ongoing process. You know, now that the the business kind of our of our life together is over, um, and the and the ways we set each other off, and you know, mother daughter complications and all that, uh, I see her really differently, and that's an ongoing process for me. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true in every grief in a way, but I've found it more particularly with my mom. I think Maybe there's a lot of things that are more particular with our moms. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah, kind of what you were saying about, you know, the complexity and the layers and, the, you know. Well, you know, interestingly, I, 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 this book I'm writing is primarily about my mother, but I've been doing some writing about my father, and he died 18 years ago. And I always felt really finished with him and resolved. And as I write about him, I'm realizing, you know, things are coming up that I never really thought of that way before, you know. So, you know, I think if you really are willing to examine or go deeper, that there's always, there's, there's new layers in these really primal relationships. Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad I have the opportunity to sort through all of it, you know, and hopefully come to a place of greater integration. I'm, I'm quite captured by, there are things I did every day uh, in my most, in my deepest grief, uh, which was when my wife died. But it wasn't writing for whatever reason, and I do write, but uh, it was music. It was, But the idea that you would consciously set a timer and make that time every day, your, your grief must appreciate that so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if I, if I could talk as if grief was some separate part of us, you know, that um, you really attended in a way that uh, sometimes people find it so difficult to do. And and that seems uh, that I imagine that when you're working with other people uh, and and helping them write about their grief, that must come through that you've <laughs> you've done it yourself to that degree. You can't you can't teach it if you haven't done it. <laughs> no, absolutely, I agree with and that. There's, you know, there's, there's something about you know if you you come to a workshop and it's called writing through grief, loss, uncertainty, and change. You know, people feel a lot of anxiety coming to the day when they've signed up for something like that. And then, but when you're in the room and everyone has losses that they're dealing with, you know, it's just this permission. Um, people go really deep because they're not trying to deal with it on their own. And there's, there's such a difference between grief on our own and the kind of mourning we do in community. And so when, you're, um, when you write about your losses and it's witnessed by other people, it's transformative in a way that's very, very powerful. Um, that's different than just talking to a friend or even a therapist or a counselor. There's something about that circle um, of other writers who are sharing their grief that is very profound. Um, We're going to have to cut to break, but that's uh, it reminds me of Francis Weller's um, comment that, or something he says a lot, which is um, there's an aspect of grief that can only happen in community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really agree with that. Seems so true. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Laura Davis, you can go to lauradavis.net. And if you want to specifically go to the workshop, just put slash grief after that. Be back soon. Music. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every month. Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Laura Davis about writing as a healing practice and the and the work she does as an author and also as a workshop leader on working with grief. And uh, right before the break, we were particularly talking about what you've been kind of working out in this memoir about the end of your mom's life. And uh, I really resonated with that sense of kind of surprisingly still having things to sort out. You know, for me, I'm, I'm a therapist. I've been a therapist for a long time. I became a therapist because I found so much value in it for myself. And uh, I certainly talked a lot about my mom during that period of um, my initial therapy and, you know, quite deeply made really deep changes for myself. But there's something about her having died that um, conjures it all up in a very different way. 
Yes, I think that's true. I, I also think that, you know, when you have someone who's a really big um, figure in your life um, and has held power over you or you perceive it that way, that when they die, you suddenly have permission to feel everything. Um, huh. They're no yes. longer there in real life. You don't have to deal with them. And I think a lot of people, a lot comes up after people die uh, that was not possible for to come up while they were still alive. I have found that, and I've also found that I'm... I have a lot more um, uh, thought and feeling and experience around her uh, life as a woman and what that looked like for her and how that sort of shaped who she was. In other words, I've thought a lot more about who she was as a person separate from me than I, I thought about that some before she died, certainly, but I've thought about it differently. Um, with maybe more um, freedom since she died. Yes, I, I, I think that's definitely true. So um, there's a piece of writing that, that um, I hope you'll read that, that kind of um, does speak to the complexities and, and your... Uh, you're looking at those things now. Would you would you um, read that? Sure, sure. A year after I moved Mom into Sunshine Villa, she was on my trajectory every day. Usually I found her napping on the couch, perfectly still with her mouth wide open. Is she dead yet? This is how she'll look when she's dead. Mom slept slumped over, a raft of newspapers carpeting her feet. The daily crossword puzzle lay beside her, an uncapped pen by her side, but the boxes were always empty. She had done the New York Times crossword puzzle every day for 50 years, always in ink, never in pencil, but she couldn't do it anymore, yet the habit of folding the paper to that page had stuck. Mom wore no makeup. Her false teeth might be in her mouth or on the floor or on the coffee table in front of her. When they were out, her cheeks were hollow, and the sharp points of her implants pierced the hollow of her mouth. How had the vainest woman I'd ever known come to this? Shoes with heels broken down, stuffed onto swollen feet. A shirt with stains from breakfast. Wild, unbrushed hair. When I moved Mom in, I taped an index card next to the front door of her room. It said, Have you brushed your hair in thick black Sharpie? Having brushed hair no longer mattered to her. That card was there for me. Every time I walked in and saw Mom sleeping with that death mask on her face, I resisted the urge to flee. She slept hunched over, her mouth agape, the mask from her travels around the world on the wall above her. I pushed past my grief and dread and repulsion and gently shook her. Mom! Mom! It's Laura. She startled awake and looked at me with a blank, empty stare, panic in her eyes. Who am I? Where am I? Do I still have a place in this world? She stared at me without recognition. No one at home. Then slowly the lights would come on and I watched my being take shape before her eyes. The death pallor passed from her face. Her lips widened into a smile. Her eyes found a flame, and she beamed her life force 
every bit she had right into my eyes. Laurie, she crooned, you're the best daughter in the whole world. The words I had longed for all my life. She said them with conviction. She said them with joy. The fact that I walked through her door had made her whole day worthwhile. Mom beamed at me, and all I could think was, how soon could I get out of here? Shame swept up my throat, flushing my face. Bad daughter. I did the Buddhist thing, reciting in my head, old age looks like this. Old age looks like this. I breathed in indignity and breathed out compassion, and I stayed. I picked up the papers and cleared a place beside her. Words didn't mean much anymore, so I picked up her hand. Mom's skin was soft, softer than my baby's bottoms when they were small. Her hands were warm and dry, and it felt good, it really did, to hold them. I gently stroked Mom's palm because finally it felt safe to touch her. I had practiced, and now I didn't flinch anymore. I liked holding Mom's hand. She asked about Karen and the kids. She asked about everyone. And five minutes later, she asked about them again. I replied in a few simple sentences. Eli's doing fine at MIT. Lizzie has a dance performance coming up. Karen's yoga studio is doing great. Yes, Mom, everyone's fine. She drank in my words, her face finally animated and fully alive. I put my body next to her body and stroked her hand. I looked into her slack, dopey face, those terrible empty eyes and that smiling mouth. Finally, I could relax because she was my oasis and I loved her. I had always loved her, but now I didn't have to hold her at bay. Finally, I felt truly relaxed in her presence. Now all that beamed toward me was love, the kind of big, dumb love a mother ought to have for her only daughter. I was 58 years old, and finally I was able to let her love in. Now that she was no longer the mother I had feared and rejected, fought, blamed, and pushed away, now that she was no longer herself, she was mine. Finally, it felt safe to love her. I love that finally it felt safe to love her. That's a beautiful feeling to have, isn't it? Because uh, one, somebody I studied with a long time ago, one of the lines he would ask people to say is, Mother, why won't you let me love you? Um, which, which always really affected me. And that idea that sometimes what's happening in us as, as daughters, as children, is not being free to... Uh, or not feeling safe to have that natural love happen. I, I really resonate with that. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it was, it was very powerful to be able to love her, but there was, it was very bittersweet because she wasn't herself anymore. So who was I loving? You know, I was <laughs> loving a shell of the person she had been, and there was, there, there was so much that wasn't recognizable about her anymore. You know, her whole challenging personality, I missed it. I missed her, you know, I missed a lot of things about her, even the things that had driven me crazy all my life. Um, And yet there was also that just pure simplicity of being able to love each other. Yes. I guess, I guess uh, it sort of feels to me as if 
we have to get down to the essential in those moments. You were loving her essence more than her personality, or I, I don't know exactly right. how to express Underneath the it. Personality but, structure, yes, there was. Yes, there's there, there was, is an there is an essence. It was there. That love was there our whole lives, but we never could get to it. We both were protecting ourselves from each other. So it's it. In some ways, it was a happy ending. In some ways, it was a tragic ending. Huh. And I think what what touches me about the writing you're doing about it is that you're kind of willing to expose all of it. Um, we have similar experiences in that my my mother moved near to me five minutes away uh, in the end of her life, and I was talking to her every day if I wasn't over at her place. And it was very intimate, and at the same time, it was it was the background was uh, knowing that the the end of her was coming, and it it's um, it still sits with me very much. Some of the things that happened during that time they have so much importance because of what was going going on behind, and I think that did allow different things to happen between us. Um, she died of a different type of illness. She died of of pancreatic cancer. So that sense of losing parts of her personality was true a little bit, but not to the degree it was with your mom. Mm-hmm. That makes a big, big difference, that sense of long goodbye, doesn't it? Yes, it sure does. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, no, I was going to say that, you know, that the, the very last experience I had with my mother, the day she died, because um, I was sitting with her and her body was, you know, shaking and trembling and, um, I could smell the decay on her coming off of her, and I thought I was watching her die. And she opened her eyes. She'd been kind of in this like morphine coma. She opened her eyes. She looked at me, and she took my hands, and we just held each other's hands and stared at each other for hours. And it felt to me like there was one more thing she wanted to give me, you know. And what I felt like she passed on to me was. Um, permission to surpass her, you know, permission Uh. to go beyond her. And that was her final gift to me, which was incredibly powerful. And that she she woke up just to be able to give that to me. She knew exactly who I was. There was no forgetting me at that moment. That is such a blessing, isn't it? My, my, uh, My wife of 21 years... Her, her dad actually got all the kids, there were eight children in that family, together and gave each of them a verbal blessing not long before he died. And that mm. stays with all of them. Mm. It's, and it's it, so... It was different for each one of them. Everyone, yes. It, it was individual for each one of the eight. And so meaningful. They, they carry that as kind of a permission to have these incredible lives, right? Um, their dad has blessed them. Um I I, um, I hope I do that. We've come to the end of our time, Laura. I, I really can't wait till your book comes out. Um, we didn't have time to share nearly as much as I would have liked. And maybe you'll come back again when it when it does so that I we can that. share share more with the listeners. But thank you very much for being here today. And uh, people out there, go to lauradavis.net and... Uh, connect with the workshop but also get on the mailing list so you'll know when uh, when the book comes out can I just say one more thing 
very quickly because we have yeah. very it's little that, time. <laughs> uh, anyone interested in the workshop, you do not have to be a writer to attend. You just have to be ah, willing important. to use writing, but you yes. don't have to consider yourself a writer. And that's very true from experience, I can say. <laughs> Next week, I'll have Margot Van Sleitman. Margot's father was murdered when she was 16, and she used writing to slowly but surely find healing for this unimaginable loss. 30 years later, she met and became friends with her father's murderer. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.